Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Tessa. I'm Sam. Last week, we talked Academy Award nominations with Megan and Jack. This week, our producer Ryan is here to talk about some films that were snubbed. You're back, Ryan! Hello, I am back, and I'm bringing the heat because I'm mad about these movies and several others that were snubbed this year from my beloved Academy that I mostly look upon with with eyes wide open. I don't expect much from them, but yet they still let me down. Why is it that every year the Academy makes us so angry with snubs? What is a snub? I'd like this term defined. I go back and forth. Personally, I think the word snub is a bit overused because a snub feels very pointed and active as opposed to an omission, which would just be, you know, an oversight or something that wasn't really truly considered. Like to me, a snub is like, oh, clearly we all like clearly we all agree that this person should have been nominated for this thing. But, you know, my favorite example of a recent snub for a Oscar win is Sylvester Stallone not winning for the first Creed movie because supposedly there are large parts of the Academy that do not like Sylvester Stallone as a person. (laughs) And so that's how Mark Rylance ended up winning. So that to me feels like a snub where there is a clear narrative around the thing not being awarded that explains why they were left out. These feel like snubs because they continue to fall into the narrative around the Oscars being just, you know, if these all fall into the Oscars so white Uh, narrative that's been going on for the last few years and so i think they're worthy of being labeled as snubs but like for example if andrea riseborough had not been nominated that wouldn't have been a snub that just would have been you didn't get nominated lead actress from till not getting nominated feels closer to a snub to me because she was widely expected to get nominated i can if if you will provide i i guess i think it might be a counterpoint you know and i think at this point we're a little bit into semantics already about snubs. Our our friend, friend of the pod, Gina Prince Bythewood. Is she our friend? I would I th- like her to be. <laughs> <laughs> I that's I mean friendships on this podcast are are aspirational, <laughs> and I think that's okay. <laughs> the uh, the Hollywood Reporter as told to article. She said, The Woman King wasn't snubbed. A snub is if it missed out on a category or two. The film was not nominated for one single craft. Not one single extraordinary performance was recognized. And when has that happened for a successful film that hit all the so-called markers? It's not a snub. It's a reflection of where the Academy stands and the consistent chasm between black excellence and recognition. I would be interested in knowing what the markers are. Well, I I don't disagree with her. It's just, I've never really thought about like. So I can tell you what they are. Okay. So she has, she, she cites the A plus cinema score, which only two other films achieved last year or the 94% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes or the number of top 10 lists, including AFI and National Board of Review. We're going to pass $100 million at the global box office, which is groundbreaking and historic. Sales on VOD and DVD are great. So, our film made money and clearly had a cultural impact, which is what we all hoped for. So there, that's what they are. 
there are films that I feel like when they come out, you're like, this is this is like an Oscar-y film. Like this is a film that seems primed for this type of right. award. Then you it, have unless some you're films. too Leslie, and when you make seven dollars and forty two cents, <laughs> you can still get you can still go places. Although, as Mark Marone pointed out, how did that happen? We don't know. The distribution is like two monkeys in an office. Trying to write Hamlet, which is why they forgot to nominate anything. I don't know. Would you guys like to know the other two? Or actually, would you guys like to guess <laughs> the other two movies with A-plus cinema scores from 2022? I wondered about that. I have the list handy. I'm bad at this game. One of them is Top Gun Maverick, which I don't think is a, a huge surprise. It's safe cinema. And the other one is Till, actually, which you know yeah. feels oh, okay. very yeah. much, like I said, feels very much in line with the themes that we're talking about. Uh, on this episode. And obviously, of course, Netflix movies don't get cinema scores because they are not in cinemas. What are some of like the biggest snubs that you can think of from the last few years besides these? And I'm not just talking about films. I'm talking about like performance awards, technical awards. What are some examples of snubs that kind of fall into this category? Because I think a big part of this is that like you said, Ryan, these all fall into like a pattern, which is what makes them so controversial. It's not just like, oh, this person got left out. It's like this is a larger problem that the Academy has. The one that I think of is Lapita Nyong'o for us, which was like a big deal um, when that happened. Really bad every single time. I'm like, is it up or us? <laughs> and then I think about Lapita Nyong'o and up. <laughs> I really want that <laughs> She could play any of those roles and would do extremely well. It's you could true. sub in Lupita Nyong'o in just about any movie for any character. Like, put her in for Tom Cruise and Maverick, and I still love that movie. <laughs> I might like it more. <laughs> <laughs> she can be my wingman anytime. <laughs> the, one, the big one that comes to mind for me uh, in recent years that actually doesn't fit this narrative but will fit the narrative in the next segment that we get to not that i'm trying to rush us into that but portrait of a lady on fire not being a part of the international category was a big one because that was my favorite movie of that year so that one sticks out to me as a personal offense i guess my biggest beef is more often with movies that are nominated that actually win than ones that don't get nominated in the first place i can't tell you what movies missed out when Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody got nominated instead. But I sure as hell know that those movies never should have won anything. Right. So, I mean, I, yeah. That, so you're, you're more concerned about like which ones win. Well, those are the ones I'm going to remember. Okay. I am I not going to remember what was, I mean, I don't know. feels like this year might be a little bit different, but I'm not sure. The other one that comes to mind for me, even though it was nominated for uh, Best Original Score, but in no other categories, was Defy Bloods, which is what was my yes. uh, favorite movie mm-hmm. of that year. And again, that also fits in with this whole narrative. And Well, and Delroy Lindo could have been nominated for, for his performance Wait, Tessa, in that. do you but like I think... Delroy Lindo? What? We've never <laughs> talked about that before. Are I you know. a fan of Delroy Lindo? I, am I a fan? I don't know. I it was Chadwick Boseman was not nominated for that role. He was nominated for the other Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I was trying to remember which one it was because I remembered he was nominated that year. Um, And then was and then did not win because and then did not win, which is um, that okay. First of all, let's just hold on. (laughs) I have something to say. The movie that he won for, sir, 
Anthony Hopkins. The man in the field. I don't even remember what the hell that movie was called. The father. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that what it was called? Yes. Original. Real original. What if there was a father? Okay. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Okay, listen. I didn't like Fences because, and I didn't like Macbeth. My dude was in both of those movies. You know how I feel about Mr. Washington, right? I do. But you've got to do work. You have to convince me that something written for the stage needs to be adapted for the screen. And neither one of those movies in my mind did that. And and Ma Rainey fits this. And so if you told me that Anthony Hopkins was in a better movie and did a better acting performance than Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I would believe you. I'd still say, I don't know. I I think maybe we should just, you know, pull the lever for Chadwick Boseman anyway, but... If you well, told especially me that because Hopkins, the father is also based on a play, right? But if you told me that Anthony Hopkins did better work in a better movie, I could get over it. But guess what? He didn't. It wasn't <laughs> okay. That's the thing. Well, and the worst part was the way they structured the entire ceremony around oh the idea God. of should, Chadwick somebody should have somebody at Ernst and Young should have been like, oh no, 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 sorry, it's not Ernst and Young. It's Price Waterhouse Cooper. Mm-hmm. Sterling Draper, <laughs> Sterling Cooper, Draper Price. <laughs> what the fuck ever? Somebody should have said, guys, guys, I, I, we cannot tell you who wins these awards. We, we are the only people who know. We cannot tell you, but don't, don't, maybe don't, don't. Just end with best picture. Yeah, just do what you normally do. Just don't. We cannot tell you. Or actually, you know what they could have done? They could have sent Warren Beatty in. Oh my God! And because he wouldn't have gotten it right recently, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have said the right person who won. But they would have gotten the message. (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. John Wayne's not nominated for anything, but we get your point. It's fine. Don't worry about it, dude. How's Dick Tracy? Dick Tracy should have presented the award. He doesn't have to open the envelope. Somebody, the his the captain shouts it from his wristwatch. <laughs> well, on that note, let's talk about the decision to leave. Are you making a decision to leave this podcast? I am making a decision to leave this, this conversation. Segment. No. Decision to leave was one that I didn't know much about because I really hadn't been paying attention the way that I should have. But I heard a lot about it in the weeks leading up to the nominations, and people seemed pretty convinced that this was going to be one of the international film nominees, but it wasn't. And as our our friend Jack observed last week, there were no films from Asia nominated in the international film category, which again kind of fits this narrative that we have, but... You, Ryan, pointed out that there is a slightly different process for things getting nominated in this category. Okay, and and real fast, Ryan, before you start, Mm -hmm. I just need to clarify one thing. Tessa has not seen Old Boy and doesn't know. However, she is aware 
that I cannot have a conversation about Old Boy without making a reference to a hammer. Mm-hmm. So, no spoilers. Hammer metaphors are appropriate. <laughs> All right, I will. I will keep that in mind if it becomes clear that it, we're moving into hammer time. <laughs> if I had a hammer, for want of a nail, yeah. So the the way that this works is different from every other category in the entire Academy Awards category lineup. So the Oscars are the films are are nominated by the country they come from, and by the way, the country also gets to keep that Oscar. I mean, I, get, I assume they can let the filmmaker display it in their house, but it technically belongs to the country, which is also just weird and seems rude, actually. But the way that a, a film gets nominated by a country is done by an organization, jury, or committee from people in that country's film industry. So the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, who do the their namesake BAFTA Awards, they nominate whatever British film is going to be submitted the Brazilian Ministry of Culture handles their nomination process. And so once every country picks their movie, subtitled copies are screened by the foreign language film award committees, and then they vote in secret to determine the five nominees. They briefly changed it for 2020, 2021, and the Oscars given out in 2022 that all Academy members could actually uh, take part in that selection procedure, and then they changed it back. And so now that there is an international feature film preliminary committee that shortlists 15 of the films, and then there's a nominating committee that narrows it down from 15 to 5. And then final voting in this category for the winner is restricted to active and lifetime Academy members who have attended these five films in person. So if you watch on a digital or DVD screener, you are not eligible to vote for this category. I don't know how they police that exactly, but that is the rule. And so I think it's just important to keep in mind when we talk about this category in particular, there's so many pitfalls here. So, you know, I was talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That was not the pick by France that year. They had picked a film called Les Miserables, which was fine. Same thing this year with India did not choose RRR for their submission. I don't remember offhand what the film that they picked was. Last film show. Oh, thank you. So there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of obstacles that a film has to go through to get even nominated in this category. And the fact that there are, you know, many film or sorry, many countries in the world that are now making movies. It seems just really not great that there's only five nominees in this category because at the very least more people are likely to watch a movie that's nominated for an Oscar in the U.S. than not, I feel like, especially when it comes to international or art house movies. Just looking at the short list, movies that were on the short list but didn't make it are uh, Saint-Omer from France, which mm-hmm. we saw. Which and, is very good. Uh, we And also uh, Inuritu's Bardo from Mexico, which was nominated for, is it cinematography, Ryan? Yep. Mm-hmm. Decision to Leave obviously from South Korea, was on that short list. Yeah, and I've, I've heard a little bit about Blue Caftan from Morocco and uh, Holy Spider from Denmark I've also heard about. But yeah, this I think one of your points, Ryan, is that this should be a 10-film category. Yep, yeah, oh, definitely. Return to Seoul, did I say that already? It was on the short list, Tessa. Was it really? Return oh, yeah, because it's Cambodian. That's was right. Was Cambodia's entry. Yeah, which you really liked. I, mean, I, I liked loved it that too, film. Not. 
I haven't seen that one yet, but I will vouch for Holy Spider as being a very, it's submitted by Denmark because it was produced there, but it is about uh, Iran and it is a sort of a true crime Zodiac-esque story about a woman journalist investigating murders of prostitutes. And it is very thrilling, very exciting. Like, really, I mean, you could do an American remake and set it here and it would still mostly be believable. But there's obviously a lot about the Iranian government and how policing works over there specific that are very specific to that story that make it really interesting and engaging. So the films that did get nominated were All Quiet on the Western Front, which was from Germany, Argentina, 1985, Argentina, Close, Belgium, EO, Poland, The Quiet Girl, Ireland. We talked about these a little bit last time, but there's only one non-European country that's on that list. Do you think expanding it to, say, 10 nominations would help get more countries that are not European I mean, it couldn't hurt is 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 my is probably my argument. You know, it would be interesting to see exactly how it plays out. There's, you know, I was looking back over the last several years and you know, there have been entries from Hong Kong and Romania and Tunisia and North Macedonia and you know, just a lot of new and up and coming uh film industries have actually been represented before. They're usually again sort of outliers and you know, a lot of the winners still are from countries that you would expect. Again, Iran has a very strong film industry and a very wide number of very respected filmmakers worldwide, uh, but at least they're represented with some winners. And I think, again, what I like about this category is because everyone has to go leave their house and, and see these in person, I actually do think there is a better shot of of some of those movies breaking through to actually win because those people will have all seen them. They'll kind of seen them on equal footing. The last couple of years, I feel like the favorites have won. So Drive My Car won last year, another round the year before that, Parasite the year before that, and then Roma before that. So, you know, there are there have been more, I feel like, international films that have sort of broken through and have had awareness before they even got nominated in this category, which obviously just, you know, helps them win. But I do think that the exposure couldn't hurt, especially because international films are so underseen by U.S. audiences in general that, like, if it were up to me, and this will probably come up later, I would probably expand every category to ten categories. But this would be this <laughs> yeah. would be at the top, at, probably at the top of my list. This and director for the first two that I would expand to ten. If Triple R had been nominated for Best International Feature Film, we would be having zero conversation about this category. I mean, that's completely because fair. it is the most mm-hmm. foregone conclusion in the history of ever that that would have won because the 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 only reason that film would not have won if it had been nominated is if people couldn't stand to sit in the theater that long that's it that's it there is no way name recognition and right. gifts wouldn't have carried and that gifts. movie yes. all the, throwing a damn tiger <laughs> okay there's no way no way that doesn't result in a win. So that's all I can think of is that they must have decided they didn't want an Oscar. Let's actually talk about decision to leave now that we've had this like impromptu discussion about how there are international... no tigers thrown in decision. To no, leave. there are no tigers Spoilers. thrown in decision to leave. <laughs> well, decision to leave is a romantic thriller about a detective who's investigating a murder and who slowly becomes obsessed with the victim's wife who may or may not be the murderer 
Let's start with you, Ryan. What were your first thoughts about this film? Yeah, I, I saw this back at our local film festival in the fall uh, and didn't didn't have a chance to catch up with it again prior to this recording. But there are moments in this that are burned into my brain, especially there's a mountaintop sequence uh, towards the beginning of the film that is very impressive. There's a mountaintop sequence late in the film that is equally impressive and has a very different mood and tone to it. The way that Park Chan-wook shows just has complete mastery of mood and tone throughout this entire movie because it does change a bunch over the course of this movie. And I know we're going to talk about it in very sort of Hitchcockian thriller terms, but this movie is also very funny. There's a lot of humor all the way throughout this movie. And I think it has moments where it almost feels like it is lovingly sending up some K-drama tropes which are things I'm only aware of secondhand because I've not yet watched a K-drama, although I intend to at some point this year. But it, it, it feels like it is reveling in the sort of soap opera dynamic between this detective and this woman. And there's a lot of romance tropes that I think are played up, again, sometimes for comedy, sometimes for tragedy. And I think that with the popularity of K-dramas worldwide, I do, I, I do just have a hunch that he's sort of tapping into that here. And what I really love is I, I'm a sucker for movies about obsession, uh, to name drop another Hitchcock title, but uh, <laughs> like it really is truth, doubt, manipulation, and heartbreak are all swirling around and around. And the way that this, the, I think it's like a four act structure really in this movie, like the way that the different turns happen always surprised me. Even though I would say the ending, if you told me the ending when I was watching the beginning of the movie, I wouldn't have been surprised. But the way that we get there is so engaging and so surprising and so interesting that I just I had a blast watching it, even though I will say it is only the second best movie that heavily features Mahler's Fifth Symphony this year. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Big year for Mahler at the movies, but some strange trends this year in in filmmaking (laughs) i love i love a strange trend like that year where there was like three or four movies that all used john denver songs that was a fun time but i had a i had a blast watching decision to leave uh again i saw it in the theater at our film festival it was a packed house there were audible gasps at several moments in the film that all feel earned and very again very surprising even though the overall arc of it feels like a sort of foregone conclusion again the journey that we of how we get there is very fascinating. Sam, you didn't think that the ending was a foregone conclusion. What were your first thoughts about this film? So this is going to sound like a joke, but I need you to know it isn't. <laughs> I acknowledge that it's funny, but when I say this, I need you to understand it's real. And then I mean this. You remember, Ryan... Oh, it was whenever like the office was still in like season two or three. But do you remember all the kids were making like the tribute videos to different romances between characters on the YouTube and they would score it to like pop songs? You remember that? Mm-hmm. I remember that. So I kid you not, since we have seen this movie, a tribute video has been playing rent free in my head. It's decision to leave. Set to Taylor Swift's mind. <laughs> I am so unhappy about the way this film ended. But unhappy I because want... it was bad or unhappy because it wasn't I what you wanted to make yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> These crazy kids. Each other. <laughs> they really loved each other. 
And like the scene. Okay. The scene where he says he loves her by saying, I have become a ruined person. Ruined by love. Okay. That's that's a Tovlo song. That's every Tovlo song. <laughs> by the way. No one dies from love. That's got to be top three ways you can tell somebody you love them. Not admittedly the best way, especially if you want reciprocation. But (laughs) top three right there. And then later, when she tells him that, and he's like, when did I tell you that? And she's like, that's it. I'm going to dig a hole in the beach (laughs) and drown in the most melodramatic way possible. (laughs) That's how you know she that that's right up there. In the, by the way, Big that move. only leaves one up there in the top three. I'm not even gonna take a shot at that. That is also one of the top three ways you can tell somebody you love them. <laughs> <laughs> the so that way she would be on his mind forever and keep him up at night. That was my he, favorite. And when part. they inevitably find her, he's gonna realize how fucking stupid he is. And he will throw himself off the mountain, which I know what you're thinking. Is that the third way? No, that's just stupid. (laughs) The second scene on the mountain where she like runs up to him and grabs him. That's like, you know, like that's a Taylor Swift bridge right there. You weren't sure. Well, 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 never turn back. That's, that's, that's. You just want it to be rescored. Yeah, I, I like the way that this movie plays with that is it or is it not the whole like almost mm-hmm. the whole time and i i really enjoyed that back and forth sam i'm almost surprised that this video would not be scored to sandcastles in the sand by one robin trebatsky but <laughs> oh that's just see now we're just doing ironic now okay like, see, that's your problem you tipped over you tipped over mine could be ironic it's not but it could be with sandcastles in the sand now now, Ryan, if if you wanted to go that direction, you could, but you would have to use the song that Sandcastles in the Sand is based on, which, as we all know, is the final track on Tiffany's self-titled eponymous debut album, Could Have Been. That would have worked. I would accept that. I would also accept Debbie Gibson's Foolish Beat. But not Rock Lobster. <laughs> But you could set not to not to to Rock Lobster. Yes, you could. I think it would work. You really, you really, really could. I do want to say, I want to go back to what you said about K-drama, though, Ryan. So obviously, you can tell from this discussion that I completely agree with you, obviously. And, And let's not, I did not leave my Hitchcock brain behind for this love story. Like, I know it's still there. Like, I got it. I, I, the zoom out from the roses is very similar to the zoom out of the hair in Vertigo. I mean, there's, there's so many things from in Vertigo film. in this movie, including, oh, we're doing a second movie now. I mean, like, there's that, there's so many. Like, I saw them all. That was totally eclipsed, which that's a song that would work too, by the way. <laughs> but I, what I really like is that he made a Hitchcock movie. But then, like you said, he also made this this tropes on tropes on tropes romantic thing too. Like that's that, my friend, is genius. Well, I I'm glad that you brought up Hitchcock because, and I'm glad you brought up 
some of the actual visual cues that that he has in this film. When asked about it, he, in an interview, he said that he didn't purposefully, like he wasn't thinking about Hitchcock, but Hitchcock is such an influence on him that it made sense that these things would like show up in the in the film. My question is, this this is the most restrained of his films, I think, that I've ever seen in terms of it's Stoker's not more restrained? Not in terms of violence. Oh well I oh in terms oh, of violence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, sure. Like fine, this is whatever. this is this is definitely more thriller territory than it is horror territory. Do you remember what I said to you at the very beginning? Probably something about hammers. No, this is the no, I said this is the <laughs> sequel to Midsummer. Oh, yeah, that is what you said. I forgot about that. <laughs> That, uh, that that's really the only violence in the movie, though, right? Is yeah. When he, when he hits his head. Yeah. Titanic on land. Okay, I don't even know where I was going with this now because it's been so derailed from where was, I was, was originally. Violent, restrained. Violence. No, I was just going to say, do you think that is because of the Hitchcock like vibes that you get from this? It's just an interesting direction for him to take, considering things like Stoker. Well, and- he said, you know, what he said about it was that he realized that he didn't have to to do what he wanted to do. He did not have to have the graphic violence. No hammers are necessary. Nobody needed to take their shirt off. I mean, he didn't say that. That's me paraphrasing. But he said he didn't need the nudity and the violence to tell the stories that he wanted to tell. So he thought it would be fun to tell them that way. That is a I mean, path? I'm not anti that. It's just very interesting, like as a turn, because usually you don't well, see someone like him turn I, off of that road. I like really that. think it's funny because and and Jack mentioned this too, but it's like what happens when you do this kind of movie without violence and nudity? Oh, you made a Wong Kar Wai movie. Yeah, that is what he said. It. <laughs> that is what they I said. Mean, yeah. But that's the thing. There is a Wong Kar Wai reference in the film. I, Park Jan Wook is aware of this. He is aware of the Wong Kar Wai comparisons. And, I mean, they are clearly two very different directors. But And, and you could compare both of them to Bong Joon-ho. You know, I, I think I would have... I think I would have said Wong Kar Wai was the outlier of those three directors in terms of mood and style. But it's clear that Bong Joon-ho is, I think, perhaps, if you're thinking about that romantic aesthetic is probably the outlier here. And so I I just I I guess what I'm trying to say is decision to leave shows us that Park Chan-wook is doing a different language in some respects than we thought he was doing. He was doing it the whole time. But a lot of the aesthetics of the things that he did with with violence especially kind of threw a lot of people off the scent and he's a lot more sentimental than I know this. Well, and I think he's trying to find sentiment in different, like it, it looks very different for him than perhaps it does for Wong Kar Wai, even though they yeah. have like a similar feel in some ways. My other question was, I, I think I mentioned this to you, Ryan, when we were initially talking about this film, but like this film also makes me very angry because it is a romantic thriller and this is a genre that does not seem to exist anymore in U.S. cinema. Is he bringing it back? Could we see more of these types of films? I mean, this is at least his second in a row, if not third, depending on how you feel about Stoker. But the... <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> the face 
Sam is making now is yes. great. <laughs> uh, but no, but I I really think so because I I also love the Handmaiden. I was someone who was not super intrigued by him early on based on his reputation among film bros and the way that he was talked about and the way the old boy specifically is talked about. But this last run of films has made him one of one of the people where I'm like, every time he does something, I'm going to have to see it because I need to make up my own mind about it as soon as possible before I get all of the discourse and spoilers and all that kind of stuff. Because what he's doing is just super fascinating to me. And I think that's part of the reason why this movie connected with the people that, that at least that I know that, that love this movie. I know Tori is also a huge fan of this movie as well. And I think it's, it's, it gives us something that we're missing elsewhere. And I think that that makes the, this oversight from, from the Academy even, even more sad to me because they're not even going and saying, oh yeah, look, 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 this is a great movie that's doing a thing that other movies, you know, that we're nominating in all the other categories aren't doing. And so it feels like, again, this sort of, it's like this little genre that's like hanging out on the edge, trying to gain traction again. And, you know, I hope there's a bunch of like young filmmakers who are listening to last season and the upcoming season of You Must Remember This and are like, you know what? We need to bring, we need to bring sexy movies back. Bring sexy movies back. You know, here's the thing though about those movies. And I just remember it was body double. Like the second they get together for the first time, uh, he's just like, why do bad things happen? I just, I think about that speech every so. It just goes from zero to melodrama in like one point five seconds. It's perfect, man. But you know, you take like the end of Basic Instinct. Like, oh look, they lived happily ever. No, they didn't. That's gonna be bad. She's totally gonna murder him. I enjoy that genre a lot. The problem that I have comparing it to Decision to Leave, and I'm gonna say this, and you're gonna be like, so you like. This guy, you like Wong Kar Wai, you like Haruki Murakami, can you explain why? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't like stories that are love stories where it doesn't work out. I know you don't. And I know what you're thinking, why the hell do you like these people? Because that's all they do, and I'm like, I know! Sam, I would agree with you. It's one of those things I don't love on paper. Like, I like that would be my stated preference. I want it to work out. That's what I want. But when it doesn't work out, but it's done excellently, it hits so mm. much harder than when it's done crappily. Like, it's That's it's one of those true. things, you know, it's it, it, the quality has to be, it has to be, the tragedy has to be earned, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think here it is earned, uh, especially, I really was taken by, Tang Wei, who is the lead actress, I was really taken by her yeah. performance throughout this. She, again, gets to play in a couple different modes and I think excels at all of them. And I think one of the one of the things about this movie that could not work is a lesser actress in that role. You wouldn't buy the detective's obsession, but I think she, through her performance, conveys why she is so captivating in terms of like personality and you know how their relationship unfolds like she is a very you can feel the pull of him to her you know one thing that i think is really interesting about the way this movie concludes with the de- detective for a detective he's awful bad at figuring things out anyway when it comes to love when it comes to love when it comes to love yeah. it does remind me of the he's batman the, my my personal urtext of this kind of story is Norwegian Wood, 
which which we can go back and we can look at as something that has a problematic view of manic pixie institutionalized girl, right? Which is basically what she is. And you, you, you take a look at the guy who can't really, he's like in love with her, but he doesn't understand her, so he doesn't get to be with her, right? That's kind of the original version of that text, right? And then the proliferation of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is kind of like an offshoot of this. This is not that. This is very much a real girl who is a real murderer, but she has feelings, damn it. And this this detective- She cleans the blood up I, so he won't be scared to but, see her. But that's the whole thing, right? <laughs> the, the reason this doesn't work out is the detective is too stupid to realize- that she's been here the whole time. <laughs> you belong with her, dude. And he doesn't, he can't know that. And like I said, that is working in a very specific tradition that just so happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in the Western world more often, but damn it if Wong Kar Wai and Mirakarmi aren't the, like the reigning champions of this kind of romance. I really liked, before we move on, that you mentioned how funny this movie is, Ryan, because I probably laughed harder in this movie than I did in either of the other two movies that we're going to talk about. I think my exact words to you, Sam, while watching it during the the chase that involved the soft-shell turtles was uh, it's like the, it's like he watched the first Knives Out movie with Lakeith Stanfield saying, this is the stupidest car chase I've ever been in, and thought, no, I can do a stupider one. <laughs> So Quick, like, kick them over so they can't get away. <laughs> <laughs> There's two very funny chase scenes in this. The other one actually is the Wong Kar Wai reference when they're running up the stairs and the detective mm-hmm. like collapses on the stairs. That's perfect. There's just so many like little moments. The sushi set, the premium one that the he gets premium. for her. Oh my yep. god. Um, there's there's some really good stuff in here, and I think I, I, it was I so funny when they opened that box. I'm like, damn, he bought her some good sushi. Yeah, is <laughs> that can he expense that? I don't know. I was so hungry the first time, like when I watched this, and that did not help. But before we move on, I do want to say I do want to cover two quick things. One, which is uh, I want to mention the categories I would have nominated it. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. please. I probably would have thrown in for best picture. Uh, it was like number fifteen on my top. 10 are my top list of 2022. I certainly would have nominated Tang Wei for Best Actress. And I also really would have nominated cinematographer Kim Ji Young because this movie looks incredible. And I think, you know, and part of this is production design. So I don't want to give the cinematographer all of the credit, but I often don't know where production design, like those rewards are weird. But the way the visual storytelling in this movie is amazing. One, there's a lot of shots that are basically characters moving through what feel like tableaus, which is where the camera is very still and they're moving through a space, but the space has a bunch of different layers in it. So there'll be something happening way in the background and then close in the foreground. And all of the the compositions are just beautiful to look at and also tell you a lot about what's going on and how the characters are feeling. And those tableaus start very orderly towards the beginning of the film. And as the investigation goes on, especially when we're around the detective, there is more and more chaos on screen. And I think the way that it sort of sells his mental state by the environment around him a lot of times is also just a very nice and sort of subtle way uh, to capture that mood. I just want to remind you, Ryan, very quickly, because uh, I, 
I know you heard the as producer, I know you were there, but I just want to remind you while we have yet to see Triangle of Sadness or Avatar that I would would be happy for Decision to Leave to replace women talking, Banshees of Inisherin, or All Quiet on the Western Front. In fact, the three movies that we're talking about today could replace all three of those and I would not be sad. Likewise. All right. Let's move on to Nope, which came up last week as well, um, because I think this is probably one of the most high profile of the snubs besides, I guess, The Woman King for Viola Davis, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But usually anytime I have a conversation about snubs this year, Nope is usually the first film that comes up, um, directed by Jordan Peele. It's a Western. It's a sci-fi movie. It's a monster movie. Uh, It's about black people in film history. There's just so many things going on in this movie. It's a cautionary tale about casting... Animals. (laughs) About casting animals in Mm -hmm. sitcoms. Or in film in general, actually. um, Because you get the really foreshadowy moment at the very beginning where they spook the horse um, during Mm -hmm. the the filming of the set. Like these people have never heard of Neil Young and Crazy Horse. (laughs) It's like they've never... I I understand that if you're not somebody who knows anything about Western films, you know, about spooking horses, but come on, where's your Neil Young knowledge? Don't spook the horse. But this film is basically about two siblings who are trying to keep their family business afloat, but they start noticing that some of their horses are disappearing and they eventually realize that it may be aliens or it may be this giant monster that's just sucking up livestock and people and eating them which is such a weird twist for this film is it yes it's for this film for this film weird twist exactly for this film <laughs> nope you know a weird twist for this film would have been something completely explainable I in the understand. context of the normal world i understand why don't we start with you sam what were your first thoughts on this Th- film that that <laughs> <laughs> well no i i okay listen so we we've talked about the fact that that I think that anybody who's having a conversation like you do, Tessa, about whether, again, I want to say up. I really want Levita Nyong'o to be an up. Uh, <laughs> any discussion about whether or not Jordan Peele's best film is Us or Nope is doing Get Out Dirty. Because I think that it's kind of like, and this is a bad example because there's really only one album after Nevermind that matters, but it's like, what's Nirvana's best album? And you don't talk about Nevermind. Oh, because it's okay. It's just too good is what you're saying. It can't be. And that's what get out is. Get out is like a statement, right? And, but, but the thing that you see from starting from get out, all three of these movies, what Jordan Peele does you so compare in terms of horror compare it to compare it to a movie like scream or you know any uh x or pearl or any of the ready or not kind of movies or anything like that right these movies are different as horror films from those movies is in those movies something really bad is happening like you thought the world was normal and then this really bad thing happens the menu is another good example of this. Now, it doesn't mean you won't be completely traumatized if you survive, but you can go back to a regular world, right? This is like an isolated incident. What Jordan Peele does 
is make horror films where if you live, you will never go back to the world that you lived in. You will never, after you find out that you know people are racist, but that is like, like that's not just saying the quiet part out loud. That's just like something completely different. You will never see the world again. Once you learn about the underground world people, you're never going to go back to the way you lived again. Once you understand that the horror is an alien, but also people, <laughs> you'll never go. That's that's what that's what these movies do, right? That's why, and I, I I suspect that's one of the reasons why this movie got snubbed, because Get Out had enough going for it that that like it had Bradley Whitford, it had, you know, it had real like traditional Key and peel type comedy. It had Nepo Baby in it. You know, it 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 had enough traditional things to make it into that pack it's of nominees. It's also very easy to qualify what it exactly. is compared to the other two but, films. But it's still doing something batshit insane. Right. And we can talk about the level of batshit insanity that gets turned up from Jordan Peele to movie to Jordan Peele movie, and, and I'm with you on that. <laughs> but but that's the reason I think this was snubbed more than anything else. It just doesn't fit. I agree. No, I absolutely agree. I think that there are so many things going on to this film. I think part of the issue is that it's hard for Oscar voters to kind of get their heads around it or to quantify it in a way that maybe some of these other movies are quantifiable. Mm-hmm. Ryan, you've written about this film for a movie, John. What were sort of your initial takes on the film? Yeah, I, I Sam, I, I don't disagree with much of what you said, except that for me, this is Jordan Peele's best film so far. And Get Out, looking backwards, is maybe, is my least favorite, is is how I'll say it. Because I think all of them are fantastic uh, for me, there's more to dig into with Nope and Us, where I feel like Get Out isn't as rewatchable. Like, like there's a lot of details and really cool uh, things within Get Out to discover on multiple viewings, but the meaning doesn't deepen for me. It's very much, it is what it is on the tin. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a preference for his stuff. And I feel, I feel that Jordan Peele has sort of taken on the John Carpenter mantle in sort of making these like very deeply rooted genre movies that are confronting real world issues are a good time and are um, not, I don't want to say rejected, but like, especially these last two are coolly recepted by I think wider audiences. And I do feel like they will get reappraised in, you know, five to 10 years. I just, I just have that gut feeling based on the experience with John Carpenter and him doing a Western here really like lit the John Carpenter light bulb in my brain to be like, Oh, okay. These, these guys are in conversation with each other and with genre and, and all of these things. For me, this has what this has the things I like about Spielberg movies. Yeah, so with, with Steven Yeun's character, you have gr- some great Spielberg face moments, that sort of mix of awe and horror, mm-hmm. w- which is something I really enjoy. And then the ties into black people in Hollywood just really, really hit for me. I think there's a lot of things that come out of the Watchmen TV show that are sort of picked up here in terms of Bass Reeves, uh, you know, and, and him being the basis for the Lone Ranger. Uh, there's a poster of Buck and the Preacher 
uh, inside the wall of the ranch house, uh, which turned me on to that movie, which I also recently wrote about for Movie John, and it's become one of my favorite Westerns. And so I think the way that he is taking a genre I love as Westerns, merging it with another genre I love, which is Aliens Arrive, and tying it all into this history of Hollywood, I just... I could not get enough of this movie. There are scary moments. I am actually afraid of uh, chimpanzees. And so that sequence was terrifying for me. It's just, I was, I mean. It's terrifying in general, but yes. <laughs> I, I like my heart was just racing. And I was like, I, I, I was fighting the impulse to just get up and leave because that's how, that's how, like the way it holds that tension and because animals are fucking scary, okay? Like, yeah. a horse is a scary thing. They look nice. A lot of them are very nice. You can feed them sugar cubes. It's all great. I am always waiting for that horse to take a finger. And it's not mm. even... I wouldn't even be mad at the horse. It's not his, It's not the horse's fault. It's me because I'm putting my fingers too close to the mouth of an animal that is not, like... You know, it's domesticated, but it's still an animal. Are you saying that that point in the film made you want to say, nope, and then make a decision to leave? <laughs> and I think that's kind of O.J. Haywood's point. I think like that's kind of the moment where it clicks for him what's going on because there is a lot about the first half of the movie which we we do also have to talk about how both Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are just both excellent in this movie and they're very believable as siblings and they're very mm-hmm. their their chemistry is just very very good. They're giving a, each other a lot to do in this film. But the first half of the movie, it's really Emerald who's sort of the person who she she thinks she knows what's going on and she thinks she has a handle on it. And she's like, you know, we're, this is how we're going to save the ranch. Right. We're going to we're going to get this picture of a UFO like she's not even phased by it at all, you know, for the first half of the film. Um, and he's just kind of following her lead on this because she's like clearly the entrepreneur of the two of them. Um, you know, he's good with horses, but he's clearly not great at the business side of things, which is why he keeps making her talk to other people for him. But then after the incredibly poignant image, I guess I should say, of the house being drenched in blood, she becomes more frightened of what's going on. But then OJ has this realization that they're dealing with a wild animal. And because he has spent his life, you know, dealing with wild animals, I mean, I guess his horses are domesticated, but at the same time, he knows the rules of horses, right? And as long as you know the rules, you can kind of minimize that fear a little bit. And so he is able then to be like, oh, I just have to figure out what this animal's rules are. And that's kind of how they end up at, you know, getting the picture and getting all those things at the very end is him being like, okay, like this is how I would treat a horse in this situation. And I think there's a lot in this film about, about kind of that tenuous line between domesticity and the wildness of, of certain animals. Because again, sometimes, especially when we talk about really domestic animals, like dogs and cats, for an example, we had this tendency to think of them as like little humans. Um, and that's because for the most part, dogs and cats don't, you know, snap, although dogs can do that. But the point is, is that they're not right. And you have to treat them in a certain way or else, you know, it, it there is sort of this tenuousness there, which to me was a very, it's a very Western view of the world because the Westerns are often about uh, civilization meets the nature and like who's going to win. And the natural world is terrifying, um, but it's also a very romantic view of the world. And I mean that in the sense of the romantics, this idea of like nature 
is going to try to kill us all. And, you know, it's it's a very I don't see this often in films. You know, you you see either the monstrous animal that's already monstrous and it always has been or like, you know, Jaws or you see adorable animal pet who's domesticated. And so this idea that there's actually like animals can inhabit both of those things at the same time, I find very fascinating. Well, yeah, and to take that one step further, this also goes into the idea of, you know, prey animals versus predator animals. And, you know, horses are prey animals, and this jean jacket, as they refer to it, is a predator. And so Jordan Peele is, or not Jordan Peele, sorry, OJ then realizes that he is the prey animal in this scenario and then uses that to bait the predator because he can sort of predict some, at least some of the behavior or recognize the signs of the behavior based on his understanding about how horses react to different things. And there's so much of comparison throughout this. So obviously, you know, the chimpanzee sequence and then the Stephen Yuan's character is then sort of trying to bait Jean Jacket into being the same kind of performer that like, oh, every day at this o'clock, we're going to, at this time, we're going to do the show and it's going to show up. It's going to eat a horse. Everyone's going to applaud. We're going to sell lots of little alien toys. It's going to be great. But I love that, you know, he's OJ's neighbor. OJ lives on a real ranch with real horses. And then the next door neighbor is a fake Western town with fake horses. And there's all, there's all of these things that are double and, you know, those relationships are really explored and set up. And again, the way that it brings in that history feels like a corrective for all the stuff that we've been ignoring for the last hundred years in terms of our popular culture. And so being able to do those things, like I would put Nope up against Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a movie I love very much. And I, I think it's a favorable comparison. And so for me, it has all of these things that I love in movies. It has this interesting character dynamics that, you mentioned Tessa, especially I love the way that OJ and M balance each other out. Um, like their personalities are are very different, but you can see how they've helped each other over the like you can infer what their entire they clearly relationship grew done. up together. Like that's, yeah, they have like that shorthand of people who've known each other forever. You know, and even in that first scene where OJ is standing uncomfortably in front of this entire cast and crew and trying to give like the spiel about, you know, their horses and what they do. And you can see he's he's more comfortable dealing with the horse than he is dealing with the people. And Kiki Palmer walks in and is like, all right, here's the and she's like selling everybody on this concept. And they're immediately like they're at ease because she's speaking their language, whereas OJ excels at speaking the horse's language. And then that whole third act is just like that's that's ultimately what elevated it to my favorite movie of the year is because it combines all of these, you know, Western genre things where you have OJ riding around on this horse as the music is swelling and the way that Jean Jacket unfurls and reveals more and more about its physiology is fascinating. You know, Kiki Palmer does the Akira bike slide. I mean, it's it, yeah. <laughs> this ha- this movie has everything. That's, you know, that's that's the bottom line. And for it's me. so seamless, too. Like, it, there's no point where you're like, okay, this is where it stopped being a Western and became sci-fi. Or this is, you know, like, it's all mm-hmm. sort of put together in a way that makes sense. OJ and M are able to, like, not be freaked out about it being an alien and just continue on. And I don't think this contradicts what I said earlier, but I know it kind of works against that. It's interesting. You know, thinking about the way that different communities react to different things, right? I 
heard what you guys have been saying, and I've been thinking about it in the context of somebody very publicly yesterday advocating for genocide, you know, just out loud. You know, when somebody believes they can say, we should just kill all these people out loud. And then they're like, no, I didn't say that. And it's like, yeah, you did. And then it, it's your people. It, it's kind of like, I'm, oh, welcome to this world. And then you remember that Jordan Peele is telling stories about people who they've heard that before. And it really changes the way that you look at other things. So it, it, it kind of puts into light for me the difference between uh, Stephen Yoon's character and then these two siblings. They're both dealing with an alien that will eat them, right? It's the same threat, right? But the difference is that Stephen Ewan's like, oh, it won't really. I mean, it's just, yeah, it could eat me. It won't. I mean, like civility, right? I'll give it its horse and we'll react in these. No, the thing wanted to eat you. Can, can we also talk about the fact that long before OJ and M said the word nope in this film, that no. that horse actually yeah. kind of said the word nope by not coming out of its stall? Right. But, that's, but that's the reason he dies yeah. and those two live. Because they understand the relationship. They know what it means when somebody says, I want to kill you. I think that's part of what the simplicity of Get Out is, is Get Out trying, him, Peel trying to tell people with this movie, when somebody says they want you dead, that is what they mean. It doesn't matter if they smile and say they'd vote for Obama again. That doesn't change anything. And he's been fundamentally selling the same message these last three movies in different it's like will you get it if i tell it in the metaphor of an alien what if what what if what if i make every okay listen what if i make everybody blue and i put it on a different planet would you get it then what if they're half white half black I do, I do get that. that and and I they were also the Riddler. Reference. I got that reference. <laughs> um, the other thing I really, the other thing that I, I really think to me elevated this again to, to the top of my personal list is the way that this approaches the entertainment industry and I think Hollywood specifically. Both uh, Stephen Yen and the siblings are fundamentally trying to exploit this creature for profit. They're just going about it in different ways. And that is never in question. That is an accepted part of the reality. One is obviously more invasive than the other, we could argue. But they both could ultimately affect this wild animal's behavior in, in various ways. But what I think is interesting about it to me is that is a more scathing critique of Hollywood than 99% of Babylon. Because it's actually digging into and deconstructing the idea of what Hollywood is doing and not the way that hollywood makes movies it it like it gets a it gets a layer or two further down than babylon and really questions the fundamental idea of what are what do we do just to make a profit in the name of entertaining other human beings when you say this it reminds me of something that nobel prize winner bob dylan wrote <clears throat> you may be an ambassador to england or france you may like to gamble <laughs> You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> right? Isn't that, I mean, that's that's Hollywood, right? Yeah. Uh, I... Even Cameron's chasing an Oscar. 
that is weirdly one of my favorite Dylan albums, which I know is not a popular opinion, but it's a good song. I mean, say what you want about the album, you just did. But <laughs> <laughs> two other things I wanted to say before we move on. Um, one of them is I also appreciated just how much this film was interested in reestablishing black history in filmmaking, which is not something that we talk about a lot when we talk about the beginning of filmmaking. I had no idea until I watched this movie that the first moving picture was of a black man on a horse. I had no idea. I was always taught that it was the and great it came train up robbery. In Babylon. Yeah. Like <laughs> um and so yeah, again, like so another film that talked about it this year. And so like the idea that this ranch has been around since the beginning of films and it's been always owned by the same family is just it's very interesting. It's not in a like a focus of the film, but it is kind of there. This idea that like we belong here, right? And we've been part of it this whole time. And you couldn't have made these movies without us. By the way, Ryan, gotta serve somebody won the Grammy for best rock vocal performance <laughs> by a male in nineteen eighty. So how I love Bob Dylan, but how does he win vocal awards? That is, <laughs> I, I have <laughs> so many questions. Literature. <laughs> I didn't Chronicles, man. That either. <laughs> that's the one you want to get upset about? I, I didn't. Anyway. Come that's on. Not the point. That's not the point. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, and we're, I'm going to talk about this in The Women King as well, because Sam brought it up, is the lighting of this movie is so fucking good. Mm-hmm. This has been like a thing that people have been complaining about for a long time in film is that a lot of traditional a lot of the traditional lighting methods don't really work for black people, which is why black people always look a little bit ill lit in some films. And this has really been changing a lot over the last couple of years, especially as you get black people in filmmaking more prominently. And I know that this was something that like insecure for an example was really praised for when Issa Rae was doing that show. This film looks so good. And I mean, we've been having these conversations about how films are getting darker and how it's harder to see what's going on in film. A lot of this film takes place at night. Both, all, a lot of the characters are black and yet you can see everything that's going on and the environment is just so beautiful. Um, and you're able to see like even just details of the environment as well. I was very impressed. This is dark, but not murky. And I think there's a lot of murky in a lot of other things right now because they're just taking a digital camera and pointing it and it's dark out and they're not really thinking about the lighting. Like I've watched some of the behind the scenes stuff, especially for that like raining blood, uh, that whole set piece, the light that they have on a giant crane over that house is gigantic. Like this movie is lit in a purposeful way. I've heard that the focus for Peel was to not get the night scenes to look like night scenes in a camera, but to try to capture the way that darkness and objects look in the dark after your eyes have adjusted to the dark. And especially in this environment, like this ranch is out in the countryside, there's not a lot of light pollution out there. Uh, and so like you, you, you really can actually see better in the dark because you know, your eyes have actually made that adjustment. And so there's a, a ton of detail. If you're a person who buys physical media, I highly recommend the physical 4K disc of this. It is stunning and looks just as good on my TV as it does, as it did when I saw it in the theater. It's 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 an incredible achievement. It feels like it was building off of what Barry Jenkins did in Moonlight, which was the first time that I really noticed black skin at night looking 
like real, <laughs> uh, right. you know, looking more realistic, and you could see the details the same way that you could see details in the faces of white people in most other movies. And so it really there there's a purposefulness behind this as opposed to some of the other uh, recent things that that I probably don't need to mention. But but you know as Tessa said, we've all heard the complaints about like everything looks so dark now. And I think it's just a lot of like quick, easy digital camera setup and letting the technology sort of do the work versus really designing a lighting scheme to make sure the things are actually being able to be seen. Yeah. So I mean, two things about that really quickly. The first one is a technical thing. You, I, I don't know, Ryan, if you think 75% is too low, you can tell me on that. But 75% of people have the backlight and the brightness turned up too high on their TVs at home. And it could be more. I, I wouldn't be surprised. But It's at least 75%. Right. But so the thing is, even if you approach, like, I, I am not going to say my TV is professionally calibrated. It's OCD calibrated. And that's not nothing. A, a TV that approaches the way it should be calibrated is not forgiving to a lack of light. You know, I mean, because, you've had to turn the light up a couple of times on recent films that we've watched. Well, I've like had more to than use, you would normally. So the the whole, especially newer TVs that have, uh, like the one we watch that we actually watch Nope on upstairs, has an HDR brightness set that you know when it's light outside, it will adjust for that. And when every time you're adjusting for something, you pretty much ruined. Fidelity, if that's something you care about, which a lot of people don't, and that's fine. But if you're trying to capture fidelity of an image of any kind on a TV, any high-def TV, LED TV or OLED or whatever, the lack of brightness from a, a the person who made its perspective will ruin the experience for you. Like, they're doing a lot of damage. It's very similar to uh, sound mixing where... Um, I learned a while back that sound mixing is often done twice, once for theater presentation and once for the most common home theater presentation, but little attention has been paid to that as well, and that's kind of a distributing streaming platform deal. That That's really in the weeds to get to say that, you know, there's a lot of problems on both ends, but nobody's doing the right thing, hardly, at all, except apparently for Jordan Peele and friends, <laughs> and and also... Also, Jordan and Gina are both doing good work here. Both friends of the pod in a perfect world. Uh, <laughs> I am going to say the second thing. And this is going to be inelegant. Because first of all, it's inelegant as a concept that exists. There's a reason why we're talking about lighting a film and how good it is. And it's no coincidence we're talking about films that have Daniel Kaluuya and Viola Davis in them. And like I said, there's no elegant way to say this. There is a very, very, very prominent stereotype against black people in general with darker skin. That is a discourse that permeates just, I know it does in America. I don't really know outside, but I know it's a big deal. I, I've heard it talked about in all kinds of different situations. But the bottom line is, if you can light Daniel Kaluuya well and Viola Davis well, good, good job. You're competent. You can actually do the job you were hired to do. Good job. The fact that we're having to say, oh, this is great, really tells you something, doesn't it? But like, yeah. they did. Mm -hmm. And these are two very good looking people. Why wouldn't you want to like them well? <laughs> it's not rocket science. Sorry. I, like I said, it was inelegant. But it had to be. Said. No, I think, it's, I think that's a really excellent point um, about both of these films. So 
obviously, I think all of us would have wanted this to be nominated for Best Picture. What are some of the other nominations we would have liked to see for Nope? Uh, yeah, I, I can start. I mean, I would I would have put in Daniel Kaluuya for Best Actor. Uh, I would have put in Kiki Palmer for Actress. I would have put in Stephen Yuen for Supporting Actor. Uh, definitely would have put in for Screenplay and Cinematography for all of the reasons, you know, that, that we've talked about. Um, like I said, to me, this is, I, I wouldn't say no to it in any other category also, except, you know, obviously like adapted screenplay where it doesn't fit, but I was going to say, I, uh, uh, you wrote a lot about the score of this film too, in your, oh yes, in your uh, review. <laughs> thank you for reminding me, Tessa. Uh, I, I love the score of this movie, the way that it, it really, you know, it evokes, it evokes John Williams at certain points. You know, it, there are, there are points that feel very much like. Uh, William's work with Spielberg, especially. There are other pieces of it that feel very Western-inspired. Michael Abels is the name of the composer. Uh, He did also work on Get Out and Us, but I think this has a broader, because of the different genres it's playing with, it allows him to experiment in different ways and mix in other genres that Peel was working with here that he hasn't worked in before. You know, there's some Morricone in here. Um, There's also sounds of the of Jean Jacket, presumably, mixed into the score as well, so that not all of that is sound design. Some of that is actually score that is underlining the, you know, alien nature of the sounds that the creature is making. Uh, I got the vinyl release from Waxwork Waxwork Records, which uh, has very cool cover art. Uh, it sounds amazing. It has already become one of my go-to writing music albums to put on. It's... The score, it, it, it's great. And again, I think it, it captures in its own way all of the things that we've talked about, uh, except maybe the lighting because it, it is music. But it really does, you know, I, I think it suits the film in terms of the scope that it's going after. And again, reflecting all the influences that I think are present here. Yeah, it, it could have easily been nominated for any of the production technical awards as well. I, it wouldn't have been out of place. I guess... The thing that comes down to it with a, sam- uh, a a sample size of three, I'm not sure if this is the kind of statement you want to commit to yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if I committed to it in the near future. Damien Chazelle makes a great movie like Babylon, and I'm surprised. Jordan Peele makes a great movie, I'm not surprised. And I mean, that's the kind of situation. Like, when Avatar 2 came out, once we were convinced it was a real movie, <laughs> nobody was surprised when it got nominated for all the things. Right, it Cameron mm-hmm. made a movie and it got nominated for a bunch of stuff. Much as we want to hate him, we're not surprised. There's a short list of people that are like that. Spielberg is clearly on that list. Zemeckis wishes he was. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Peele may in fact be, and and the question is, is he going to get recognized in the way that that a Cameron or a Peter Jackson? You know, is going to be when you're talking about the technical awards. Going back to our conversation a couple of weeks ago, or even Spike Lee going back to our conversation from a couple weeks ago. All right, before we get on to the last film um, that we're going to talk about, so we've kind of danced around this a little bit. This idea that, like, the way that the Oscars is set up, regardless of the nomination, something is up with the way that films get nominated that cause. Films by people of color not to be nominated as much or people, even just actors um, and producers and, and cinematographers of color not to get nominated the same way that white people do. 
what are some ways that we think if we were in charge of the academy, if we ran things, what are some changes that we think would help in, to ensure that snubs like this don't happen as often? There's a, there's an answer to this. You've thought about this. I have an answer to this. Systemic change in the public education system. Uh, yeah, obviously. I <laughs> like, mean, uh, short of that. There, there is nothing you can do in the academy to change this. Okay. Nothing. BS. I, I will call BS on that. Uh, the NFL instated a rule several years ago that before hiring a coach, they had to interview at least, I think it's just one black person. You know how you know what that did? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You cannot artificially fix something like this because if you add a diversity requirement, which they have, you can just get around it. It's not going to change anything. Sister, the academy can do nothing. Ryan. Well, I will say <laughs> the academy at least is attempting something. So the the first the first major plank uh, is they've been broadening their membership and offering their membership to more more people of color and more people around the world, which I think especially now the, the way the Academy is organized, it does vary by branch somewhat. So they've been, I feel like they've been mostly focusing on the acting and directing branches when we're talking about this stuff. I don't know for sure how, how well, how the other branches work or who is even part of eligibility and, and all that kind of stuff when you get into the guilds and the different crafts and things. But uh, at least for the high profile stuff, they've been, trying to offer their membership to younger, more diverse people, hoping that that will sort of reflect, come out on the other side, reflecting in the nominations and awards. They've also done things to, they've reduced the number of people who get lifetime voting membership in the academy so that they continue to vote after they stop working uh, as a way to sort of, you know, try to kick the old out a little bit faster than they have been in the past. But it, it I mean, it is a systemic issue. There are things that they're trying it's not going as quickly as uh, I think any of, any of us would like, including the Academy themselves. It is very interesting to me this year that we have sort of a landmark landmark representation for Asian uh, actors, especially, you know, and a lot of that is coming from everything everywhere all at once. But, you know, I think that is that is a big step forward while it still feels like uh, black people are underrepresented at the same time. And so, you know, I don't know that there's a there's a a bunch of great solutions. Uh, the BAFTAs have uh, selection committees that are very focused on making the nominations more diverse, and they have a big part in the nomination process. But again, if you look at just the list of winners, uh, you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to tell because it's the exact kind of winners that you would expect the British Film Academy to nominate. You know, my my big thing has always been more nominations per category, because at the very least, you know. The way to the best way to get nominated for an Oscar is to get nominated for a previous Oscar. And so at the very least, the more people you have nominated, the more people who show up again, they're going to win, you know. So just getting more people in that pool of and getting more kinds of films, hopefully, and more kinds of filmmakers to be able to say, you know, directed by Academy Award nominee Jordan Peele or ideally directed by uh, Academy Academy Award nominee Gina Prince-Brythewood like those are things that one would change help actually start to change the power within the industry because the Oscars do mean something within Hollywood it will it would be easier to get something made if you have that sort of Oscar approved pedigree and I think expanding that you know even in just the acting directing international film categories as a start would would help to maybe shift that power in a way that would help 
curb some of the st- systemic stuff that we're talking about. And I, I don't know that this bears repeating to the audience, to the, to the Momble audience, but I have said it, I have had to say it to many people who are like, the Oscars don't mean any, well, no, maybe to you they don't. But what the Oscars mean first and foremost is exposure. And, and as you said, the Oscar nomination equals the potential, the ability to do film. In, for some people, it's the difference between being able to keep doing the thing and not. And I said last week, I don't think this is a particularly strong year for nominations because people messed up. But even in a year that I don't see as strong, it's still important to ensure those opportunities exist. And that is precisely why they should widen those categories for exactly what you said. But it is a thing that bears repeating a lot. Again, not necessarily on this podcast, but that is the importance of award shows. They are stupid fun unless you are actually a part of that community, in which case it is the difference between being able to continue a career in passion or not. Or as we found out in Kihue Kwan's case, it can be the difference between having health insurance and not. You know, it, it, it is real life to people and we can have a debate about privilege or not. But so yeah, exactly what you said. I didn't need to say any of that. <laughs> well, this is actually a really good place to bring this up as we transition into talking about the woman King, because the big scandal this year was of course, Andrea Riseborough being nominated for best actress and Viola Davis, not getting nominated for best actress for her performance in the woman King. And I'm not sure I, as a person who does not usually understand how the Academy Award rules work, um, I don't completely understand the scandal. I understand like parts of it, but a lot of people basically are saying that this is this is nepotism in a lot of ways. Yeah. Let, let's okay. Ryan's going to actually tell you what what some of the more important aspects of this though. But I'm going to break it down for you in a very simple way first. Okay. Is you it going to reference Bob Dylan? No. Okay. You know that bullshit when people <laughs> tell you that you shouldn't do the thing this way because we don't do it this way? Yes. That's what this is. Okay. That's helpful, yep. actually. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and popular people always win. Yes. I do understand that that is part of what's happening. So the short version of this is that Andrea Riseborough was in a very teeny tiny movie that played a bunch of festivals, presumably had an Oscar qualifying run because she was able to get the nomination and nobody questioned that. So it at least played for the requisite number of times in New York and LA to qualify. But the distributor had no awards budget and I could spend an entire other podcast talking about awards campaigning and how that all works. And Mark Marone has. (laughs) Also in that movie. I find it very fascinating and very odd and very strange. But regardless, Andrea Riseborough does have, you know, privilege of being an actress who is friends with a lot of other actresses. And there were enough people in the nomination body for that category that said, I'm going to put Andrea Riseborough on my ballot as a favor to my friend or to someone who I admire, I like, etc., uh, because they asked me to. It was a very sort of direct, a, a very like retail politics campaign, like sort of one by one reaching out and saying, hey, would you mind putting me in for a nomination? Would you mind putting in for me for a nomination? I don't think 
Andrew Riseborough necessarily did anything wrong. The copy-paste formatted tweets were weird, for sure, but I don't think it was wrong. I think the issue, perhaps, is that the those people then put her on their ballot and th- they left off Viola Davis or Daniel Detweiler from Till, you know, or any other, any other number of performances because they were like, okay, well, we know we have to nominate Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh because they are the people who are most likely to win. So I want to, you know, I'm going to include them on my ballot. I'm going to put Andrew Riseborough in there. I'm going to put Michelle Williams on there. I'm going to put Anna DeArmas on there. And then snub Viola Davis. they all felt sorry for Anna DeArmas. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah, I I can't I can't talk about blonde. I cannot talk about blonde. We're we're not going to talk about blonde. We've already done that. Um <laughs> But I again I don't think Andrea Rasborough has done anything wrong, but it's the behavior of the she was able to leverage her privilege, which again, which is in her in her rights to do so, but it is in, you know, within the I believe when I was reading the, the article that sort of broke this all down. There's like 1500 people that basically nominate actors for Academy Awards. And if you get like 300 people to put your name in, you're probably going to get nominated. You know, it's, it's a really actually small pool of people that can have a big impact on these awards. And Andrew Riseborough and her people were able to take advantage of that. And it's really, again, I don't, I don't blame her for, cause you know, I, Look, I love the Fablemans. I think Michelle Williams is really great in it. I wouldn't have been sad if Viola Davis got in instead of her. You know what I mean? Like, and if Andrea Riseborough was still in there, whatever. But, you know, it's it became a bad look because of, you know, at least one of Daniel Detweiler or Viola Davis were expected to be nominated for Best Actress, a category which a black woman has only won once. Uh, and it's been 20 years uh, since then. And so I think it's, it was the it was like a one two punch of like this is a weird campaign thing and also it might have actually knocked out people that we needed <laughs> to get nominated for the kind of PR machine of the Oscars itself. And I've seen this group of people and some of the I won't mention them mostly because I can't remember them, but I've seen this group of people who have been most directly implicated in this basically described as a whole of this is this is blonde white women looking after themselves. Yeah. They historically do that is they, the thing. And that's mm-hmm. kind of it's the a, problem. It's historically a, they do and we know what they do on a national level. Yeah. Um yep. and I think that's yep. like the main thing is that it is sort of fitting into this narrative about white women. But that's the thing, yeah. right? When you have the rules the way that they are and you say, well, change the rules so these things aren't wrong. You know, what if you don't have a for your consideration budget, isn't it fair to do this? Well, that's a different question from will this kind of thing happen and we'll never see actors more deserving get not like what is it? What is the system we can do? What is the, the system that will get the most fairest nominations? And once again, to go back to your question. That there isn't one. Yeah. And so the question is, would making this kind of campaign, retail campaign, legal, would it make it even less likely for somebody outside of that community to break through? It's hard because I could see it cutting both ways. I could imagine a scenario Mm -hmm. in which, maybe not Viola Davis because this is a big studio movie, but like I could imagine an actress of color taking advantage of that same kind of campaigning and also you know, sort of sneaking in or squeaking in a nomination. And, you know, I would, again, I wouldn't have a problem with that. And, but it, it's hard because, you know, it's, it's who, I think to your point, Sam, it's really about 
who is most likely to benefit from this because who is most likely to look like the other people who are going to make that determination. Well, you could say, you know, this is what happened with Bridesboro this year, but like to take somebody who's in the woman King, Lashana Lynch. What if Mm -hmm. Brie Larson started something for her next year? Because they're pals. I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but they could be right. Brie Larson should be. Brie Larson is demographically just like what you know how this campaign got started for and- Andrea Riseborough. So it could happen. The fact that in my head I'm like, but it won't tells you everything you need to know. But mm-hmm. yeah, in theory, this this kind of campaign could work for any actor. I, it won't, but it could. Well, let's talk about the film itself because I I do think it's very interesting that unlike Decision to Leave and Nope, which those as films, I think, have gotten a lot more conversation. This film, the film itself has gotten conversation about how it was snubbed, but it's mostly Viola Davis's performance that has been talked about in terms of being snubbed because of all of the stuff with Andrea Riceborough. This film is the story of the Agoji, which was an all-woman unit of warriors who protected the African kingdom of Dahomey in the 1800s. It deals a lot with kind of the politics of the region, but also with colonialism as well. We'll start with you, Ryan. What were your first thoughts on this film? Yeah, and and just to give just a little bit of additional background around the awards conversation overall, like this is a big studio movie. This is also going to play into things that I I like about this movie. You know, this is a this is a it, this is a Sony movie, so it's it's got the weight of a big studio behind it, and it tells you. I think this tells you everything you need to know about the sort of reception of this movie that it was projected to gross twelve to sixteen million dollars its opening weekend. And it made over a little over 19 million. So this is a movie that overperformed. And when you look at the demographics that of that opening weekend audience, 60% were female, almost 60% were over the age of 35, and, and 60% were black. So, you know, traditionally, let's say underserved demographics, especially when we're talking about blockbuster movies, this has a 50, $50 million budget. It's a, it's a big production. And I think it's actually even looks like a bigger production than it actually is on paper because I think Gina Prince Bryce would made the most of the the budget that they had and really invested in like sets and lighting and figuring out exactly what was needed to tell this story. But I think what I liked most about The Woman King is that it is a it's an old school Hollywood movie. It feels like Spartacus. It feels like Ben Hur. Uh, except it's about people who are not <laughs> Spartacus or Ben Hur. And it is about black women and it's very Again, there's no good way to phrase this, but they're <laughs> making a making a a very classic Hollywood movie about people who weren't featured in those movies the first time around is something I find very exciting and very fun because I like classic Hollywood old school historical epics like this and this is a historical epic it fits that same mold like you could map the plot beats of Spartacus onto a good chunk of this movie and the, the you know the character beats the plot beats and they would work and yet it feels completely different because it's coming from such a different perspective but i i love that mix and to me that's that's the thing i i really took away from the woman king that it, it you know and we'll talk about some of the issues that it digs into but for most of its runtime it's a very fun and engaging and again like it's not reinventing the wheel genre wise but it is bringing people who have never been featured in this genre previously and putting them front and center and again, I just I also think that you know Gina Prince Bryce is just a great director, and I think she really makes the most of 
the actors that she has, the environment that she has, the budget that she's using. It look to me, it looks great. Uh, I watched the 4K of this last night, and or not last night, the night before that we're recording. Not that it matters to the people listening when I actually watch that relative <laughs> to when we're recording and releasing we these episodes, but does reporting You know, but but Gina, as friend of the show, <laughs> yeah. <you know, laughs> Uh, she referenced like Last of the Mohicans and Braveheart and Gladiator, which are all movies that like I I loved. I mean, those are all movies I really like for various reasons and are problematic in their own various ways. But I like that spirit. I like that kind of movie. And this really gave me that kind of movie in a way that, you know, I wouldn't have expected because this is not a story I was familiar with. This is not a people I was familiar with prior to sitting down to watch The Woman King. By the way, I... Gina is definitely a, a friend and, you know, even though she's not part of the old guard and, and we're definitely going to talk more beyond the lighting of this movie. <laughs> oh my That's God. two. That's two. Anyway, love and basketball, um, <laughs> which has to be a monkey at some point. Cause I still have not seen that, but just to your, to your first point that you made, Franklin Leonard tweeted today talking about how Creed 3 has overperformed. He tweeted, always take the over on industry tracking of black movies. I don't know how many times I have to tell you all this. And then he followed up. And if they're still consistently underestimating the value of black movies at the tracking stage, you can be damn sure they're underestimating them at the green light stage and the development stage and the script stage and the IP stage, etc. You know, the thing about Gina Prince-Bythewood, it's very similar to Ryan Coogler. We're talking about a handful of black directors who, you know, are, are not generational directors like Spike Lee, but these are, these are younger people. And the fact that you can count on probably, I mean, I'm sure there are Jordan Peele. That's three. The fact that we just can't rattle off name after name after name tells you something but these are people that that can make movies they they can get relatively speaking the the wherewithal to make movies fairly easily not as easily as a lot of other directors but the fact that you have to have a situation where like Kugler had to sponsor Michael B Jordan to become a director you know that that kind of sponsorship that kind of uh, issue of getting greenlit is so complicated and then but then when you see when you see this movie and realize it wasn't a huge relatively speaking again budget movie, damn it looks good. By the way, if you're watching this on Netflix, you probably aren't paying for the 4K deluxe streaming subscription so you're not even seeing it as well as you could. I we watched it. We did not watch a 4K disc, but we did watch a 4K stream because we bought the movie. So, first of all, second of all, and third of all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point. And if it wasn't for Ryan Coogler, this movie would never have gotten made because uh, this story was originally pitched back in 2015 and every single studio rejected it And until Black Panther came out. And then someone was like, wasn't there a script that was kind of like this? <laughs> and Black Panther made a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, the doors were, were cast pretty much wide open and you know it, it got picked up. Funnily enough, th- what's also interesting about this project and what has been, I I personally think, a little unfairly criticized is that this movie was written by white women. 
the original project was actually conceived by uh, ER alum uh, Maria I, Bello. I saw that and I was like, that Maria Bello? <laughs> Are there two? She was visiting uh, Benin, which is where the uh, Dahomey Kingdom was. It's on the same land that the Dahomey Kingdom occupied at the at the time of this movie, and learned the history of, of the Agoje, and wanted to was like I would make a great movie, and came back to Hollywood to pitch it, and everyone was like, "We're not interested." The, the tradition of borderline inappropriate things about Africa that ER has brought to us. <laughs> continues Ryan hasn't somehow. gotten there yet <laughs> well buckle up buddy <laughs> but I, I do think that uh Gina Prince Bryce and Viola Davis both really made this their own project you know I mean I think oh, absolutely apologies in advance to Lozzie but you know with the auteur theory I think this is a time where we could really point to it as an example a positive example of them taking a script that had been around and I don't know how much they rewrote, but certainly in the way that the performances are directed, the way that the movie looks, the way that it's put together, the focus on some of the scenes, I think especially with casting, even casting Viola Davis, who was older than the character was as it was originally written. And they rewrote a bunch of the movie to match her age and her like stature within this community. And, you know, that I keep thinking of the scenes where they're in the the baths you know and her scars and and all that kind of stuff feels very purposeful and as far as i'm aware was not really part of the original uh script for this when i first heard about this film (laughs) uh, you know it's funny the discourse around this film because like this film got a lot of criticism and i kind of went into it not knowing what to expect because this kingdom was involved in the slave trade and so there was all this discourse online about like how like oh well they're like glossing over it or they're like you know heroicizing this kingdom that did some awful things and then this film I like went in thinking like oh they're not going to talk about it but then it's the central theme of the film so I'm not completely sure where this criticism is coming from it feels a little moralistic in a way that kind of makes me uncomfortable because it's very much like oh so we can't talk about a kingdom that has a complicated history or we can't like talk about how these people actually had to sort of figure out their own identity you know in the middle of this rapidly changing geopolitical landscape that was happening at that particular point in time what did we think about sort of the central idea of this film which is not all girl boss feminism as some of the trailers may have made it seem like but it is very much about like sort of this identity crisis that's being provoked by colonialism i was also surprised by the way that this movie and the story takes that issue head on i'm not going to vouch for the historical accuracy of the way that the dahomey kingdom is presented where there was this king who was like look we'll sell people who aren't in our kingdom to the white Europeans, but not our people. I I don't know if that is the reality or not. I have not done that research, but the fact that the, you know, we don't, it's not like we expect the madness of King George to deal with slavery, even though that was obviously a concern of the British empire at the time to, to me leveling that accusation does feel a little unfair. Like it, it really is that sort of, you know, making the perfect, the enemy of the good. And, you know, it's like we it's not like it's not like we don't have dozens, if not hundreds, of white historical epics that gloss over major horrible issues in 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 the name of a, a good story. And so 
you know, I think I don't I don't know that we should give those movies a pass. I don't know that we should give this a pass either. But I think we have to wrestle with it within the larger context of, again, the kinds of movies that get made, the kinds of stories that get told. And to me, the way that this confronted slavery head on and the slave trade specifically and colonialism was very surprising to me. And I think it really does thread that needle on telling an engaging personal story about these people and these specific characters while also threading those concerns as things that shape the environment that they're in. And, you know, like I said, it really confronts it head on. I think it's a fascinating, the way the characters are talking about the slave trade. You know, there's especially, I'm thinking of the character who is uh, mixed race, where uh, his mother was uh, a uh, a goje and his father was a white man and his experience coming sort of back to his ancestral homeland and his experience of it and the way that he sees himself cut, sort of caught between these worlds but it doesn't overdo it because it's also very much not his story which i also appreciate i i think this i think the woman king is wrestling with these issues and it's not trying to provide a neat and pat answer to them and that does make people uncomfortable but I enjoy the, not even the ambiguity, but I, I enjoy the sort of open, we're trying to figure out how to address this and figure out how to talk about it. And these characters are having those conversations that are sort of probably reflecting conversations that were being had behind the scenes while the movie was being made of how do we depict this and how do we talk about these things. Uh, and I think overall, the just representation and getting to tell this story you know, I, I think it it's baked into the fabric of the movie, but doesn't take over the movie, which I also appreciate because this is also a very fun movie to watch. There's something in in the movie that that is uh, it's a really good moment, and and Tessa definitely said something about it while we were watching. But you can, at your own risk, simplify history. But one way to simplify history is to say that this better you than me thing did very much happen. There were groups who sold other groups into slavery to keep themselves from being sold into slavery, which is only a time delay, essentially, because, you know, and and so that is a very simple version of history. Now, here's where we get to what the film is actually trying to do, because a lot of times that very basic truth about what happened in the slave trade gets translated into something that is very racist, which is, well, I mean, if you guys hadn't been so petty and fought against each other this way, maybe you wouldn't have been sold into, you know, you see that that becomes a very racist way to look at it. And what this movie does is that scene where Oba tells the slave owner I, whatever your tribal things are, that's your business because because that's the point. You assholes did it too. You just tell the history in this way to make us look like idiots for doing the same thing that you people do. And it's it's a great like, and and that's the thing about the way that this movie is told. It's told from a point of view that that a white person could very easily. Well, so blah, 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 blah. And the answer to that is none of your business. Shut up. This isn't about you. <laughs> I, so I, I appreciated that. I, I, and I asked Tessa, I said, what is the, what is the black and more specifically, what is the black African 
discourse on this film. That's what I'm most interested in. Something else I'm interested in, though, to 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 shift gears here is Sheila Atim. Somebody I'm very interested yes. in. Yes, yes. And I would like to see in all the big movies, not just dying in a Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> By the way, it's funny because we were watching the Indie Spirit Awards and I was like, Barry Jenkins, man, has been busy. Got this TV series he did, and he's got this movie he's producing, and she's in both of them. <laughs> so it's it's nice that they've got that professional hookup going. But I, she was my favorite part of the movie. I just got to tell you, I like the whole movie, but I, but 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 I like her. I liked her. Okay, yeah, I, was I liked say, her. I she was great. Say something more? But no, that that's it. Sense. She was okay. great. I, I would chime in. I I love Lashana Lynch in this movie. She mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible and and nails that character. Uh, John Boyega is great in this movie. It's very He's different just... role for him too. In a better world, we're talking about the acting in this movie and how great it is, right. rather than all the bullshit surrounding it that's come up because of. You know, we're talking about it on a stub episode for a reason. But like I said, in right. a better world, we could just go on and on about the acting here. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, as I think we've all alluded to, Viola Davis should have been nominated for Best Actress. She herself also should have been nominated for Best Visual Effect because she is uh, incredible to look at in this movie. Like Those arms, though. <laughs> yeah, like her and her and her presence on screen. Like the moment she enters the frame, the whole it's almost like the the world goes quiet around her. Yeah. Like that moment where um, the uh, where Nawi booby traps the uh practice dummy with the gunpowder the stare down (laughs) that she gives after that moment just sent chills down my spine i was like you know it it was the like i'm not mad i'm just disappointed in like (laughs) i just i wanted to yell in that moment i almost did but i'm afraid tessa would have hit me if i had done it i was like name a shonda rhymes protagonist who could do that pompeo could never (laughs) Davis you know, is a Shonda Rhimes protagonist. That's what I'm saying. Okay, that's the that's whole point. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. You know, and and again, there's so much of this classic movie storytelling where, like, you know, that gunpowder thing comes back in a very, like, very fun and like I I always love a a battle sequence where there's a, an unconventional tactic that's used. Uh, you know, whether it's in a a war movie or a sports movie, it, I, I like it in both. Give me a flying V. Uh, I'm I'm down for it. <laughs> hey, I, I understood that reference too. Uh, did, I... did they say anywhere in the credits that no termites were harmed in the production of this film? Because, because, because. I I will also say that there was a moment. Uh, speaking of Viola Davis and just everything she does in this, um, there is a moment in the film where she thinks that Nawe or Nawi is dead or or sold into slavery or something and she literally says the line burn it all down (laughs) and not only is it this great like cathartic moment of just like rage against you know the white people who are you know preying basically on this conflict between these these two different kingdoms but Sam actually said, "Oh, we're doing John Wick now. We have gone full yeah. into John Wick territory." Yeah, you could and- you could call it going the full Inglorious Bastards. You could call it mm-hmm. going the full John Wick. You can now, if you'd like to, call it the full Woman King. But I love it. I, 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 I the unconventional thing. I like that too. But I like the no, you messed up. And now everything, shut it all down. 
Well, do you like remember it. what you said immediately after that? What did I say? I would watch, I would watch John Wick again. with Bill <laughs> Davis as the main character. Yeah. I did say that. Uh, and you'd be correct. The other I mean, thing they're, I doing, would... they're franchising the damn thing. Let's go, people. Yeah. The uh, the, fir- the first time I saw this uh, in the theater, which uh, I saw this the same day, I immediately left for this to go to see the Avatar re-release, which was quite a long day, but a good one. But the moment at the end where John Boyega finally says the woman king, I really was expecting that hard cut to black. And I, I would have stood up and applauded uh, because <laughs> it's such a good moment. And there is good stuff that comes after that. But that it was like such a perfect, like re- the title is the last line of this movie and it just <laughs> hits with full force. I'm usually not actually a fan of the like, oh, plot twist. These two people are actually related. But this worked for me because it tied in so much of what made Viola Davis's character who she was and her trauma and spoke to that and the way that it really, it's not that they teased out the reveal, but they built up the situation of how, you know, her daughter came to be for lack of a better phrasing. Uh, and they really, it paid off in a way that I think worked really well and didn't take away. Cause often I'm like, Oh, I like a, you know, a fan, a found, parent-child mentor-mentee relationship as much as I like an organic one and sort of backing into oh actually they were related usually again just makes me resentful because it seems unnecessary but here I felt like it was actually really earned and so it was a good positive example of that kind of trope. So I have two things actually here that I really liked because I I completely agree with you. I think part of why this works is because they were a found parent-child relationship before they realized that they were related. Like, their relationship, they haven't seen each other since Nawi was a baby. And so, like, they have more in common with found family relationships than they do with a biological relationship. And I think that makes it kind of work a little bit better because both of them, especially at the end of the film, know that their relationship is not going to ever be, you know, like it could have been if, if, uh, if they had been, you know, stayed together all of that time. And I don't think they want it to be. I don't think either of them have that expectation, which I think works pretty well um, in this favor. The other thing I was going to say, um, and I liked what you said about trauma because I've been watching so much Lost lately that literally every single time I think about parents and children, all I can think about is Lost is about how trauma is revisited upon your children and like the sins of the father and like all of this stuff. What I really liked about this is that this film really wants to look at trauma and it wants to look at uh, specifically Nansika's trauma and the trauma of, you know, having to have this baby and how that all came about and all of that stuff. But it's also very explicitly about the fact that Nawi has her own trauma from her childhood that's very separate from that trauma. It's not be- the same thing being revisited. And when uh, Nansika discovers that Nawi is her child, she specifically says, like, this is my opportunity to address my trauma and not to revisit it on my child, um, to not, you know, imprint what I had to go through on my child, which feels like a very refreshing take on this kind of relationship that's kind of born out of trauma. Because usually you do have this like, oh, trauma is a cycle and, you know, it goes through generations. And it does feel like there's this very deliberate choice here to just be like, no, like, 
we're going to establish this relationship on a different footing. It feels very joyful at the end. And again, it doesn't have, it's not loaded with those expectations that you would normally find in this kind of narrative. And so I really appreciated that about this film, as opposed to Lost, which is just misery. Anything else? Um, Obviously, she should have been nominated for Best Actress. Are there any other nominations we would have given this? I really wanted Gina Prince-Brithwood to get nominated for Best Director because I absolutely think she deserves it and probably a few times over at this point. But that that was the other big one uh, where, you know, I'm not a fan of Triangle of Sadness uh, and I don't think the directing in that movie is particularly interesting or special, whereas I had a blast watching this movie. I like that uh, Gina Prince-Brithwood refers to this as a sports movie and drawing on her athletic background informed all of the battle and action sequences and, you know, kind of showing the the, the power of black women in a physical sense, uh, I think really comes across in a way that, again, I can't really think off the top of my head of another movie I've not made by her that I, I can think of that, that does it as well. Sam? We'll never really understand the secret life of the Academy Awards, but... Um... <laughs> There's three. That's we can the best, only thought. best I could do. We can only but um, I, you, you could, you could nominate this for a bunch of technical awards too, and I wouldn't be upset. I'm not sure that it would win, but I mean, it really is a well-made film, and there's something to that. All right. So as we bring this to a close, I do have, I did want to ask you all, because there were a lot of films that we talked about potentially discussing on this episode. What are some other films that you feel like were snubbed this year? Out last year. I don't even know. <laughs> For me, uh, the, the big one that I point to is uh, also, also involves Jordan Peele and it's uh, Henry Selleck's Wendell and Wild, which is a stop motion animated film that is on Netflix and was put out by Netflix. Uh, Henry Selleck is best known as the director of Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, as well as Coraline. And Netflix put all of their awards campaign dollars behind Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which which I do like. But Wendell and Wild is a wild movie. It is uh, longer than most, uh, especially stop motion animated films. It is very complex. It is a like I don't know that it is a movie for kids, uh, which I would also probably say about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, but Wendell Unless and Wild, you want your kids to have nightmares, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, I mean, if, uh, kids have to learn about Italian fascism sooner rather than later. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Wendell Wilde takes the prison industrial complex head on in its movie and does so in a way that is very, like, confrontational, but also set in a fantastical world dealing with the afterlife and systemic injustice, but also has some of the most bonkers character designs I've ever seen. And it, it definitely feels like a a labor of love project for him. So that, that was the other one that I originally had brought up as potentially being a part of this episode because it's a movie that I don't know if it's entirely successful, but damn, I had a good time trying to figure out if it was going to be. And it looks great. Like they should actually be nominated just for technical achievements. Um, we know it's difficult to make a stop motion film like that. Yeah, and we could have had a full stop motion animated uh, Oscars category this year. That's uh, true. Which actually would have been fun. Sam, any? I I mean, I don't, again, Triple R should have been submitted because it would have won that Oscar handily. Like, I, I'm still convinced of that. Babylon, as I mentioned last week, I I have seen a couple of things that have indicated 
that people are going to come all the way around on this one sooner than later. I saw it the first time and was like, this is such a good movie. How it didn't get nominated for Best Picture. I don't know. Is it that people hate Damien Chazelle? Maybe. And then Wendell and Wilde too. I, I just, you know, I think when it comes down to it, the Academy is getting more things right than it is wrong. And I think we, we, I'm not saying we lose sight of it. I don't, I don't think we have to give them credit for anything. Uh, but I mean, they do get the obvious ones right every so often. I mean, like, I don't know. Nominate the menu for something. I don't know what, like, but generally speaking, we did pretty good. I think the ones that we've talked about already are the ones that, that we missed out on the most. Well, the only one I was going to add to that list, just because I have to add sci-fi films to, mm. to lists, you? Uh, was After Yang, which actually did get nominated for a bunch mm. of other awards, but um, did not get recognized by the Academy. And maybe that's also because Colin Farrell is in it. And we, and didn't we do put, hate Colin Farrell. We didn't want to put too much behind Colin Farrell this year. Um, it just encourages him. But uh, that's what, You know, when I said that, you made fun of me. <laughs> Now you're now you're just okay. But it, it was a great sci-fi film, one of the best that I saw last year, and uh, it it definitely deserved some attention and did not get any. So that's my my two cents. I think the bigger takeaway from this Oscar season, to me, outside of the movies we talked about today, I think the bigger discourse is stop being racist, make movies more accessible. To me, that's 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 and make it. your weird movies. Come on, make some weird movies again. Yeah, let your I freak flag fly. Be like A twenty four. It's working for them. It is working for them. Except, except, make weird, make all the weird movies. But since the Oscars happened yesterday, based on when this episode's going to be released, I really hope the best picture went to the danger zone last night. <laughs> I really hope it did. <laughs> Sam Other is that, very though, much rooting for Top Gun Maverick to win. But that's the thing. I mean, it, it should be it should be a nice, accessible, inclusive marketplace of films where you can see your big budget sequel if you want, and you can see your weird hot dog fingers movie too if you want. That should be the way that it is <laughs> in the best possible world. And we got both of those. We did. We did. That is so true. it's not like it's not like you can't make this work. <laughs> All right. Bagel! (laughs) (laughs) Where can people find us? Ryan, where can people find you online and in their headphones? Sure. You can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd and Storygraph at Silber, whatever, that's with a B. And then you can find my writing on line with uh movie john that's movie j-a-w-n dot com and in the pages of the upcoming print zine for uh our spring issue which is called the squared circle so it's themed about wrestling movies and boxing movies uh i wrote about one of tessa's favorite movies the quiet man uh, as well as the boxer because it's close enough to saint patrick's day that i'm calling it irish uh Uh, I also have an upcoming project that I want to tease that I am launching a new podcast at the end of March. So keep your eyes to my social media and you will learn all about that. And I look forward to having both Sam and Tessa involved in that project uh, in the near nearest future. I am so excited about it. Thank you for actually being on mic today, our oh. producer. <laughs> Let's talk about snows. It, it, it took a lot of restraint not to speak up for and make the <laughs> Oscars episode even longer. So, oh boy. Sam, 
Sam, where can people find you? I will allegedly be in that same print scene talking about our friend, Darren Aronofsky. Do we want him to be a friend of the podcast? Really? I mean, you said it's aspirational. I'm not sure I aspire to that. It's aspirational that he wants to be our friend. (laughs) Now, if you would like to hear me or see me write about on Twitter that, you know, wanting people to die because of who they are is bad and being able to watch movies at home during a pandemic is good, you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can also find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. Remember, moviejohn.com, moviejawn.com. You didn't beat me to it this time. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't have to say it today, Ryan. I did. I said it. You did? Yeah. You were listening. Did you spell the J-A-W-N? Did you do that whole thing? I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm I learned. I, I, I learned by watching you, Sam. I learned by watching you. Oh, man. You learned it from watching me. I thought that was Elise. Never mind. That's a joke. They'll get it. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. We'd like to know your thoughts on what we have in store for the podcast or what you thought about the Oscars last night. Any big disappointments? Any excitements? Did you I don't like know. it? When, it's did, in the future. Did you like it when Lana Wachowski showed up like I said she would? <laughs> we, Sorry we didn't get to tell that joke. Oh well. <laughs> it was a good joke. It was good set up and everything. Don't worry about it. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, where you'll also find the link to join our Discord community, which will also be in the show notes. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>